We're continuing today our look at the study that we started just a few weeks ago, the I am statements that Christ makes in the Gospel of John. Now, just out of curiosity, you, could, you don't have to raise your hand, but you're certainly welcome to if you want. Is this something that you've ever taken the time to look at before? I'd be curious. Right, I'm not seeing a whole lot of affirmative statements, maybe one or two. All right, So this is possibly something that is kind of a new focus for some of us. And so uh, I hope that as we look at these statements, as Christ expresses his divinity, as Christ shows us his divine powers, Christ shows us the purpose for which he has come to this earth as he illustrates these things through these I am statements. I hope that our hearts are encouraged, particularly as we continue our study looking at these things. And today we're taking a look at a portion of scripture from John chapter 10, where Jesus makes a curious statement where he describes himself as a door. He says, I am the door. Now, what did Christ mean when he made that statement? Well, if you would, take your Bibles and uh, open with me to John chapter 10. We're in John chapter 10. We're going to look at a short section today, and then we're going to continue looking at this chapter next week. But today we're just looking at a, a small group of verses, John chapter 10, starting with verse 7, and we'll continue down to verse 10. And this is what it states in this portion of God's Word. It says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look at this portion of your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion from the Gospel of John, that you'd speak to our minds, that you'd speak to our hearts, and that you'd help us to understand more about the mission that your son Jesus Christ has accomplished for your glory and for our benefit. So we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at these things right now, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've mentioned this probably a few times, but when I was a child, our family owned a neighborhood grocery store. And I have to tell you, that was a pretty fun context to grow up in to spend all sorts of time in the grocery store, particularly when the store was closed and we would be in there hanging out and, and doing all sorts of things in the store with my siblings and with my cousins. It was a, a very fun place uh, to spend time. I spent a considerable amount of time in that building. And most of the time it was fun, but several very consequential early life events in my life took place in that building. In aisle one, I sat on a box one particular day, and it was the very first time I held my baby sister. When she was brought home from the hospital, my baby sister was brought to the store where all our family was, and I remember sitting down on a box that was about to be stocked, but I sat down on it, and my parents allowed me to hold my brand new baby sister in the grocery store. I remember the first time I lost a tooth was in the grocery store. And the way that worked, I was fascinated that my tooth was loose. You know how that's a real fascination when you're a child and a real terror when you're an adult, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but in the moment, I thought, oh, wow, I finally, I get to join the club of people that, that lost a tooth. And my dad said to me, 
Uh, he said, do you want me to expedite this? Do you want me to help you get that thing out? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So he took a, a piece of string, and it was the type of string that you would use to tie up you know, links of sausages or meat packages and things like that. So he, he took a long uh, strand of string there, and he, he tied one end of it to my loose tooth, and he tied the other end to the front door of the building. And he said, all right, I just want you to stand here, and I'm going to abruptly push the door open, and your tooth's going to get yanked out. That sounded terrifying. So while he, he, he put it, he looped it on, put it, put it on my tooth, and then tied the other end of the door, and while he was doing that, I was working that off my tooth with my tongue. I was like, uh-uh, this is not happening. And then he pushed the door open, and it popped off my tooth, and my tooth is still in there. That, that string came off, and so... He's like, oh, I must not have done it right. And so he tied it again. And um, I did the same thing. I wiggled it off. And he got frustrated because I think at that point he was on to me, realizing I was, I was like, Dad, I'm just terrified at the idea of you bursting that door open and my tooth popping out. So he tied it on a third time and then just let the string dangle from my face. And was like, just pull it out when you're ready. Basically, because at that point I couldn't, I couldn't get it back off. It's like, just pull it out when you're ready. So for a, probably an hour I walked around with a long string hanging out of my mouth until I yanked the tooth out. But that was in the grocery store. Speaking of doors, right, because that's the theme today, uh, had an interesting experience this past summer in relation to a door, and maybe some of you saw the picture of this. We posted this online. We, we stay at a camp in uh, the month of August, and it's, we're you know, basically out in the middle of the woods, family camping, enjoying our time. And I happened to notice something curious about the door in the cabin that we were staying on one afternoon. I looked at it, and I thought, something's different about the door. And when I walked up closer to it, I could see that it was dented in two ways, and there were scratches on it, clearly from an animal paw. You know, it was very clear in my mind, and most of us thought that this was probably the case, that a bear had tried to get into the cabin. The door was dented, it was gashed, and I thought, well, I'm glad it didn't get in there. I was glad that the door prevented that, that animal from, from bursting through, but I thought, all right, it's probably wise to realize, at least, you know, I know these things are out there. Well, when you're thinking of doors, right, and that's kind of the concept we're talking about today as we look at John 10, when you think of a door, what makes a door so useful? Why is a door useful? Why do we care about doors? Well, a door allows you to gain entry into a building. Uh, a door also has the capacity to keep you safe inside, you know, if you're in a cabin and out in the middle of the woods in western New York and a bear also wants to join you inside, maybe he can't get in because of that door, right? Prevents something harmful or someone harmful from getting in. A door, you know, it get, lets you in and it keeps out what should be kept out. And you have Jesus in John chapter 10 making another I am statement where he describes himself as a door. He says, I am the door. I am the door. That's what he says. Now, does that description surprise us or sound a little curious? <clears throat> you suppose Jesus meant when he described himself like this, where he says, I am the door. We're going to take a few moments to look at it in detail here. But one of the things that Jesus was making clear when he used this analogy to describe himself, when he describes himself as the door, one of the things that he's trying to help us understand, and he elaborates on this here, and we can see this a little bit here, is that he is the way to enter into the family of God. Jesus is the way to enter into the family of God. Let me reread John chapter 10, verse 7. It says there, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am 
the door of the sheep. Now, let me pause there for just a moment, and we're just going to take these a verse at a time today. But in the greater context of John chapter 10, if you read the earlier verses, and if, even if you read the verses that we're going to be looking at next week, you can see that Jesus is painting a picture of the life of a shepherd and the work of a shepherd. That's the context that these statements are being spoken of in. And the examples that he's using here of caring for sheep are examples that would have been familiar to this original group that's hearing Jesus use these words. At night, when you're taking care of sheep, in that particular context, it would have been customary for a shepherd to gather his sheep in some form of pen. So he would have penned them in, in some fashion, with the idea to protect them. That was something that they were used to seeing in their context. It was something that was very common. Sometimes, if you had a cave or some sort of uh, rocky structure that was available, you could use that, depending on where you were, you were traveling and, and how big it was. Sometimes they would just use a cave, and they would encourage the sheep to spend their time in the cave. But other times what they would do is they would, they would gather the sheep into an area that would be surrounded by kind of makeshift, makeshift fences that were made from branches and sticks and, and things of that nature, and it would be up high enough so that it would be a sufficient barrier for the sheep, but that would be put around, and then the sheep would be gathered into that particular area, and to make sure that only what was supposed to come in there came in, and only what was supposed to leave, there would be one entrance, and at that entrance to that penned area the shepherd would sleep. The shepherd would stay there, and he would take protective watch. He would be a protective guard over the sheep that were penned in in one way or another. So nothing could come into that opening or leave through that opening without the shepherd's blessing and without the shepherd's permission. So here you have Jesus speaking of these things in a way that has deeper significance than just shepherding, which the people at the time would have been pretty used to. What he's explaining by way of example here is that the Messiah, so Jesus being the Messiah, the one who cares for his spiritual sheep, he's using this analogy to describe his ministry. He's using this analogy to describe his activity. In John 10:7, Jesus says it this way, he says, I am the door of the sheep. So what he's getting at when he's saying this here is that he is uh, the one through whom we must go if we're to enter into the family of God. He's the door. He's the one at the entrance. It's through Christ that we're given access to the family of God. It's through Christ that we enter into the family of God. Two years ago exactly, I had the opportunity to fulfill a childhood dream. And this may sound dumb to you. A lot of things that I do I think sound dumb even to me. Um, but sometimes you get an opportunity where, I don't know, I mean, do you, does anyone here get nostalgic for things from their, their childhood? You know, I think we all probably do to one degree or another. So one of the things that's always been kind of big in my mind is music. There's always been some bands that I really, really like. Does anyone remember a band named Striper? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Some of you do and some of you don't. All right. I love them. Absolutely love them. And their music was something that really encouraged young me in my faith in Christ. But I never had the chance to see them in concert. Never, you know, I, I bought their albums. I had their posters on my wall growing up. 
Never had the chance to see them in concert. Recently, they reunited with the original group all together and decided to go on a tour of the United States performing their most popular album in order, wearing their original outfits that they used to wear back in the late 80s. <laughs> and I found out about this and I thought, I am absolutely buying tickets to this. I'm going to this concert. And uh, for many weeks, my wife had to hear me talking about how excited I was to go to this thing. And as the, the time was coming up, every time our family would drive somewhere, I'd be playing striper music. And they're like, okay, enough with the striper, all right? You're on mass nostalgia overload here, you know, enough with this. But I was like, I can't wait, I'm actually going to go see them. And it was a small venue, so I was really up close to the stage and, and all that. It was real exciting, but to get into there, because it was a small venue you had to pass through a security check. And I remember looking at the, at the guy that was running the security check. He's standing there at the door. And to get in, you have to go through him. He's visibly armed. So you could see, you know, he's visibly armed and clearly not afraid to use it by the verbiage that he's using, right? And he said this. This kind of cracked me up. He said, I'm just going to let everybody know right now whether you have your concealed carry permit or not. If you are caring, if you have any weapons of any kind, you need to leave this line, you need to get back in your car, leave your weapons aside, and then go through the security check. I kid you not, half the line emptied. And I was like, how armed is everybody here? I'm not exaggerating, half the line emptied. We we're like, all right, cool, we get to move right up, we're going to have better spots, we're going there. But half the line emptied, people had to get rid of their weapons, put them all in their car, and then come back. And you had to go through that guy to be able to get into the venue. And what's the point? Why would they put somebody like that there? You know, you've got people with national prominence that are singing in a small venue. The idea is protect the band and protect the people coming to see the band. We don't want anything dumb. And so it was, a, it was kind of a rigorous security check to get in there. And the guy was kind of rough. And I remember at the time thinking, well, that's okay. It, it actually made, I, I was pleased with it. I thought it was fine. I was happy that they went through that effort to protect the band and protect the fans, especially when I saw how many people got out of line, right? Um, but the point being, to get in, you had to go through him. And here you have Jesus. He's using that same analogy. He's using that same example. That's the exact picture that he's painting here as he's talking about this idea of a, of, of a pen or this idea of the shepherd, um, you know, him as the shepherd being the door, as he says, I am the door of the sheep. He's saying to enter into the family of God, there is only one means of entry. We must go through him. We must go through Christ to become part of the Lord's sheepfold. He is the door. There is no side entrance. There is no other option. There is no secret passage. Only through Christ can we enter into the family of God. So again, Jesus is making a very exclusive statement here. He's not saying, I am one of the doors. He's saying, I am the door. Jesus is the way to enter into the family of God. Then he goes on to explain a little bit more here when you look at verse 8. And he shows us that he came to give, not steal, from his family. Look at verse 8 of John chapter 10. Jesus says this, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. 
So think about that statement for just a second. I'll read it again. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, I think probably all of us would testify to the fact that there are a few things in this world as unpleasant as being stolen from. You've probably, at some point in your life, had someone steal something from you, and it's a very upsetting experience. It's certainly not something pleasant. It's not something that any one of us desires to experience. I mentioned earlier the time I spent at my father's grocery store growing up. One of the best things he ever did that made my job as a stock boy there as a teenager extremely interesting was when he decided to start paying me to catch shoplifters. That was fun. I normally was stocking the shelves and working the register, but he decided to implement a program where I got paid $3.50 an hour. All right, that was my pay, $3.50 an hour, but for every shoplifter I caught, I got a $5 bonus. So that was the, so I got more than my hourly wage if I caught shoplifters. So guess what I got good at doing? catching shoplifters. And so I would watch people and I would study their body language as they would come in and I would see different people. I remember one particular person, I kid you not, I watched him go up to the produce counter and he just backs up to it and he's reaching into the produce and he stole some fruit. I wasn't sure exactly what he stole and he put it in the back of his coat and then he went down the freezer aisle and so I walked down the other side of the freezer aisle and apparently he had stolen a banana and tried to eat the entire banana while walking that aisle and filled his mouth with it, took the banana peel, put it in a box and at that point I walked around the side and I just said, you just stole that banana and his mouth is full of banana. Watching someone try and defend themselves when their mouth is full of fruit is a very entertaining thing. Earned me five bucks, and I was able to say, Dad, he put the banana peel right there in that box. My dad opened the box. There was the peel. Shoplifter caught. I'm $5 richer. My dad said it was the best loss prevention program he ever implemented in the store. And he said it paid it for itself time and time again, because it wasn't just me. It was, it was anyone that worked there. If you caught a shoplifter and could prove that they had shoplifted, you got a $5 bonus for every one, and it cut down shoplifting. But nobody likes being stolen from. And when you look at this portion of Scripture here, you have John chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus referencing thieves and robbers. That's how he's describing some other people, as thieves and robbers. Now, what Jesus is talking about here as he's making this reference, he's speaking about those who would try to steal from his family. So that would include people like false messiahs or false teachers, some of which would, would crop up in the context in which they lived in, in Israel at the time, where you had these people who would try and gain a following with the ultimate goal of robbing them, with the ultimate goal of fleecing them in some way or another for selfish and worldly purposes. It would also include, I believe, as Jesus is making these statements, some of the smug religious leaders of the day. Now, if you remember, when you look through the Gospels, who are the people that seem to oppose Jesus the most? It's these smug religious leaders that can't stand the fact that people are listening to the teaching of Christ instead of their teaching. And so I think as Jesus is talking about those who are stealing, those who are thieving and robbing, I think he's also speaking about these smug religious leaders of the day who are less concerned with integrity and less concerned with truth and more concerned about personal prestige and personal wealth, things that they thought could be gained, again, by fleecing the people who trusted them. 
But that stands in stark contrast to the ministry of Jesus Christ. When you look at what Christ came to do, Jesus did not come to this earth to steal anything. He didn't come to this earth to get something from us in a selfish way. Jesus came to this earth to give. He sacrificially served us, even though we had nothing to offer Him that He couldn't have had already. He gave up the comforts and the glory of heaven to walk among us and be disrespected as He's walking among us and to to ultimately suffer on our behalf. And then what does Christ give us? Well, He gives us His counsel. He gave us His example. You know, as we're going through day-to-day lives, do you ever find yourself asking, all right, how would Christ handle this exact situation? What would Christ do in this particular moment? Or when confronted with this particular personality or situation, what would Christ do? He gave us the gift of His example. He gave us the gift of His counsel. He gave us the gift of His presence as He lives within us. He gave His blood on the cross as He atoned for our rebellion. And He grants us eternal life as a gift that He paid for on our behalf. He didn't come to get something from you or me. came to give to us what we could never obtain. Interestingly, and, and hear me as I say this, and use this as a metric that you test certain things by, but I believe that one of the clearest ways, or one of the most obvious ways that you could tell that someone has come in Christ's name is whether or not they emulate his heart and his example in that area. What I mean by that is this. You know, when you're, when you're looking at, at teachers or people of prominence or people of influence who claim to be spiritual leaders in this realm or that realm or whatever it may be, ask yourself the question, have they come to give you something or are they there to take something from you? Have they come to sacrificially serve or are they primarily there to be served? I think that's a good metric uh, for us to utilize when we decide whose counsel are we going to listen to. I think it's a good metric for us to utilize when we try and decide who do we elevate to a position of spiritual leadership. There are many false teachers, there are many false messiahs, not just during the era in which Christ was doing His earthly ministry, but in our era as well. But Christ makes a point to say here that His sheep will listen to His voice over the voice of those who rob and steal. So hold those that you consider spiritual influences, whether it be pastors, teachers, authors, uh, people you see on TV, people you hear on the radio, hold them up to this metric. Have they come to give in Christ's name, or have they come to take something in their own name? Something else that Jesus shows us when we're looking here in John chapter 9, and he says this in verse 9, he demonstrates that he is the true Messiah. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, I am the door. So it's his second time saying that, but he says, I am the door. And then he says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Let's pause there for just a moment. Um, Every heart is looking to be saved. Everyone you know is looking to be rescued. Everyone seems to have an opinion about what's going to save the world or how they can save themselves, but Scripture is very clear that both our individual lives and the world in which we live will only be rescued by Christ. He restores our lives. He restores creation. 
There isn't a secondary option or a substitute that can take his place. That's something that Jesus does. He restores your life and my life. He even restores creation. Scripture tells us that that's his ministry or a part of his ministry. Uh, When you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20 down to verse 23, let me read that for us. It says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now what's being illustrated in Romans 8? What are we we being told here? What's Christ going to restore? What's Christ redeeming? He's redeeming us and He's restoring creation. That's what that Scripture tells us. That the solution for what ails us and the solution for what ails this world is Christ. And I bring that up because I think that that's an important thing that Jesus was trying to to demonstrate here when we look at John chapter 10, verse 9, where he shows us that he is the Savior. He is the Messiah. But it's also something that the Apostle Paul was elaborating on when you look at Romans chapter 8. And I'll, I'll bring it up like this. Let me show you how I think this applies in our context as we live at present. In our culture... There are a variety of options being floated out there that people would say, this is a viable option to save the world. So every time I go to a a, a graduation, right, what what tends to be a theme of every graduation? You know, at the graduation, at my high school graduation, our generation was going to save the world, right? Whoops. (laughs) Sorry about that. But at least the generation that came, you know, a few years after us fixed it. No? Oh, they didn't? Oh. All right, whoops again. No sweat. No problem. We have backup. And I remember sitting at my daughter's high school graduation, sitting there, I was like, all right, at which point does one of the speakers tell us how their generation's going to save the world and go? True to form, they did, right? So I have good news for you. The class of 2018 is currently in process saving the world. So we're all good. So if you were worried about anything, I just want to let you know that my daughter's graduating class is on it. All right? But I bring that up because there's lots of options that we all float out there as how we're going to save the world. Right? How we're going to do that. You're going to save the world. You're going to save the planet. You're going to save the world. Millions of people right now believe that the earth, this will be a controversial statement to some, I don't mean it to be controversial, but I do mean it to be true. There are many people that think that you can save the world through environmental causes. Think about this for a second. While I gently step on toes, I'm not really totally meaning to do that. But there are a lot of people that think that the world can be saved through environmental causes. Now, here's the thing. When you look back in the early chapters of Genesis, has not the Lord given us the the privilege to be good stewards of His creation? So I don't think that we should be wasteful or bad stewards of creation. You know, we should, we should take care of the earth. We should take care of the creation that the Lord has allowed us to be temporary stewards of. So I'm not encouraging us to be bad stewards of creation in making this statement. We should be good stewards 
of creation. And I try and be a good steward of creation. But I don't want to confuse that with the knowledge that somehow I am the solution for this world. I am not the solution for this world, and neither are you. We are not the ones who will ultimately fix this. We can be good stewards, but we're not the solution. Christ is the solution. And Scripture makes it very clear that He has the full intention of restoring this creation to what it looked like when it was first created. When you look at His plan of redemption, part of that includes restoring the creation. It's going to be restored, but it's not going to be restored by me. I can be a good steward of it, but I'm not going to fix the big problems. But Christ will. How about this? Millions of people place their greatest trust, and if you watch the news for more than five minutes during the week, I feel sorry for you, because every time I watch the news, it makes me feel terrible. So if you're watching the news, you probably feel terrible too. We can commiserate together, but many people, uh, millions of people really, place their greatest hope and their greatest trust in political leaders and philosophies and ideologies to save the world. But again, when you look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, it also reveals that that's not going to save the world either. I vote. I don't, re- I don't miss elections. I vote every time. And I do my best to, to happily support people that I think will be good leaders. I, I don't think I've missed an election in forever since I was 18. I'd be surprised if I did. I always vote. I always participate. And again, I happily support people that I think are going to lead with integrity, do a good job, people that have philosophies that I tend to agree with. But is it theologically correct to place the mantle of Messiah on any of the political leaders that I've ever voted for? Of course it's not. Or or any governing philosophy or anything like that. right? These are things that could be useful tools, can be a blessing to many people, but that's not what saves the world. Scripture tells us that Christ ultimately will return and reign as king and will reign benevolently. He's the king of kings. He's the one who can transform the human heart. No earthly king, prince, governor, or president can accomplish that. Only Christ can change the heart. So our greatest hope for this world should not be in us, Our greatest hope for humanity being saved should not be in our political leaders. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the door we need to walk through if we're going to experience the salvation, the restoration, and the sustenance that our hungry hearts crave. And there's one other thing that he brings up here that I don't want to miss today, and that's this. Jesus is the key to a full and meaningful life. You see how he's building up to this? He's trying to help us see that he's what's been missing. If you've been struggling right now and you've been thinking to yourself, I can tell that something's missing. I can tell you that in Christ's words, what he's saying here is that he is what was missing. He is the answer. He is the solution. Jesus is the key to a full and meaningful life. Let me read his words and elaborate on them for a moment as we finish up. In verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Years ago, our, our family became friends with a woman who attended worship services at a struggling church that we were trying to assist. And the way we would assist is on occasion, uh, I would go and I would speak there, and she made it clear that she appreciated the messages, which I thought was nice. I thought that was encouraging. She appreciated the messages. I appreciated the fact that she told me that. But she also made it clear that she didn't really want to hear much about the concept of life after death. I thought that was interesting, but the way she phrased it, she said she was more interested in hearing about what Jesus could do for her right now than what Jesus intended to do for her at a future time. And I thought that was an interesting perspective, and, and you know, I, I certainly appreciated her honesty, but I also wanted her to develop a deeper appreciation of the concept of everlasting life through Christ but I also appreciated, again, her honest admission of the fact that she wanted to know what Jesus was willing to do to impact her day-to-day -day life right now in the present. So what are your thoughts about that? You know, about Christ impacting your day-to-day -day life right now in the present. Do you get more excited about what Jesus has in store for us in the future? Or do you tend to get a little bit more excited about appreciating what He can do on your behalf in the present? Or are you at a place where you could appreciate both aspects of Christ's ministry. I think it's actually healthy for us to get to a spot where we could appreciate both aspects, where we look forward to what he has in store, but we also appreciate what he desires to do for us at present on a day-to-day -day basis. And so again, in John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So as we wrap up our time, I just want to ask the question here, and we'll We'll wind down here in a couple moments, but what does it look like to enjoy that abundant life right now through Christ? This abundant life that Christ is describing in this passage. Because I've got to tell you, there are seasons in my life where I don't think that was really my focus. And there are moments and stretches that sometimes I think we all go through where we don't really feel like we're experiencing an abundant life in the moment. It seems like I'm experiencing abundant pain or abundant trials or abundant anxiety. But here Christ says, no, this is what I've come to do for you. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. What did he mean when he said something like this? Let me suggest several things that that means when Christ says that here in this passage. When Jesus speaks about giving us an abundant life, he's telling us that the life that he offers us is far better than we could ever expect it to be. That's what he's setting this up for us to understand, that the life he gives us is far better than we would expect it to be. Abundant life is a life that's characterized by an eternal, unbreakable relationship with him. That's the nature of the abundant life that Christ gives. It's a life of relationship. It's, it's an eternal relationship. It doesn't just begin when your time on this earth is complete. It begins before that. It begins right now. The moment you trust in Him, it's this unbreakable, eternal relationship that begins the moment you place your faith in Him. And those who enjoy this relationship can find joy in every circumstance. They can find hope in the midst of every trial, and they can find help Whenever it's needed, whatever the circumstance may be, we find joy, we find hope, we find help in Jesus Christ who grants us this abundant life. The abundant life that Christ gives us is characterized by a variety of things. When you look at the totality of Scripture, it reveals to us that, that the abundant life is characterized by growth, by maturity, by transformation, and by spiritual strength. 
Each of these things are part of the abundant life that Christ grants us through faith in Him. Because what He does is He takes us from a spot of spiritual infancy and He helps us mature. And we grow. And we go from being spiritual infants to becoming spiritual leaders. It's interesting because Scripture tells us that theologically speaking, when Jesus found us, we weren't just sick. We weren't just unwell. We were, theologically speaking, dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were spiritually dead. And what has Christ done? He took people who were spiritually dead, and through the power of His resurrection, what does He do? He makes us spiritually alive in Him. Scripture tells us that apart from Christ's intervention, we were slaves, meaning we were enslaved to weakness and wickedness. And what does He do? He, he breaks the chains. He sets us free, and He grants us His spiritual strength. So we may not have every material thing that we sometimes crave this side of heaven, but if we have Christ, what Scripture goes to great length to try and communicate to us is that if you have Christ, you have every single thing you need. It may not be everything that you always want. Sometimes I have selfish desires that the Lord needs to work on me through and help me to, to mature till my desires change. But if we have Christ, we have everything we need. If I have Christ, I have everything I need for life, for godliness, this abundant life that Christ offers us. So again, when Jesus says that He's the door, you know, in this particular portion of Scripture from John 10, when Jesus said, I am the door, what He's doing here is He's revealing to us that He's the divine passageway that we're required to go through if we're going to experience and obtain the, the kind of life we were originally designed to possess. Is that the kind of life that you'd like to experience? Is your heart convinced that Christ is the door that you must walk through in order to obtain it? Jesus is the door. He is the key to that full and meaningful life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to carve out some time to look at it today. And Lord, we know that even, even just looking at a brief portion of scripture like this, where you make an analogy here, where you describe yourself as a door, Lord, it's, it's something to look at this and, and uh, kind of scratch our heads a little bit and, and be forced to ask, well, what did you mean by that? And then to look at the greater context of the passage as we see you talking about the work of a shepherd and how a shepherd cares for his sheep and what he does to protect them and how he, he provides for them and all of these things that you describe here. And then we realize, wait a second, this is something you're saying you'll do for us. That if we become one of your sheep, if we become part of your family, this is what you will do for us. Lord, thank you for coming not to steal from us, but to give us life that is abundant. We were dead. We were enslaved. You set us free. You made us alive. We have new life in you, and it's not just a, a bland, beige kind of life. This is a new life that you describe as being abundant, a life that's characterized by an unbreakable relationship with you. So, Lord, thank you for these reminders. Lord, we know that this is the type of reminder that we need more than just once in our life. This is the type of thing that we need 
to be reminded of with regularity. Lord, I, I don't even know at this point how many times I've read this chapter of Scripture. And yet as I read it fresh again today, my heart feels warmed by it and I feel encouraged by it just thinking about what you're willing to do on my behalf and how you're willing to bless your children and how you protect and defend us and how you grant us life where apart from you we were doomed, we were dead, we had no life, we were weak, you gave us strength now as we trust in you and you're present with us in the midst of everything that we go through. We have hope through you, we have joy through you, we have help through you. Lord, this is wonderful. And you're the door through which we must walk if we're going to experience that kind of life. Lord, I recognize and I know that all of us recognize that there are many people in this world who have selected a lesser door. Many people in this world who are not yet convinced that you are the door. But Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you change the heart of somebody. That today would be the day that someone would come to know you in this capacity that we would realize that you are our sufficiency, that if we've been living apart from you, that today would be the day that we would put our trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the option to do so, for opening up our minds and our eyes and our hearts so that we would understand the truth of a passage like this. And we pray, Father, that as we walk with your Son, that we would rejoice in that process and that we would take courage in the midst of everything that we endure, knowing that nothing that is thrown at us in the midst of what we endure on this earth has greater strength than you. So we're grateful for all these things. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at them together today. We pray that you would powerfully speak these truths to our minds and our hearts and help us to become deep and abiding followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.